We have family pictures taken this summer. I brought one of the family pictures to show you today. That's us, that's the family. I give this picture eight out of 10. Like we're one baby side eyes away <laughs> from this being a picture that you would see in like Walmarts and Targets across the country in the little frame. Like, you know, a bunch of people all over the world, different skin tones, matching shirts or whatever. That's a good picture. The thing about that picture, as much as I love it, this is the backdrop on our computer at home, and um, it's one that we look at to um, make us feel good about ourselves. This picture does not teach you a lot about our family. There are some assumptions that you can make from our family. There are some guesses that you can make from our family. But um, life on a day-to-day -day basis is not idyllic and serene. And the problem with this picture is like nobody's moving. In real life, you have movement and you have people who are doing things. And the pictures that, that we have on our phones or, or wherever that really show people what life is like in our family are pictures where people are moving. So I have another picture from a couple years ago that we took before the baby. Like this is more of what our family is like. You learn a lot here about the personalities of different family members. Instead of the baby, we have um, Zakara, who is our foster student who was living with us at the time. Some great things that I would like to point out from this picture. Uh, my daughter who uh, loves kind of cheerleading and gymnastics, she's showing off some good balance and flexibility there with like the one leg. Um, my son, whose favorite chorus to sing these days is all the single ladies. He's kind of got his hip <laughs> Uh, which is something that he does around the house a lot. And if you'll notice, I don't know if you could tell, uh, the Hannah there is just entertained by the whole thing, all of the action that's going on. And the parents, my wife is trying to say something, and both she and I have our eyes closed as this picture is taken, which is honestly something when we're at home with our kids all day is something that we want to do a lot, is just kind of close our eyes and, oh, what are we going to do next? This picture with all of the action when we pay attention to the action, that picture teaches us some things. In the book of Mark, Mark is a, a, a very economic writer. When Mark writes, he tells us a lot of things, but he does not use a lot of words. And this is something that college students a lot of times have to learn to do so they can get good grades on their papers. You get an assignment, and it's supposed to be 500 words, a page, two pages, or whatever. And what college students tend to do is instead of using an economy of words and filling the word, the, the paper with as many ideas as possible, uh, you know, like I've been there before, once you ramp up the font as big as you can, you just start using a lot of synonyms to fill the space. And while that um, kind of can, can help you reach the limits of the paper in terms of minimums, it doesn't necessarily help you to communicate well. One of the things that you have to do as a college student is to learn how to communicate in fewer words. There are good ways to do this, there are bad ways to do this. A bad way to do this would be to take out a bunch of words and insert an emoji. That is a great way to bring your grade level down at least four grades. In fact, you might not even get a grade. All the professor will do is doodle a little smiling poop face emoji right on the top of your paper and give it back to you and say, please hand this back in next week. What you can learn how to do, however, is to find the words that are unnecessary and to take those out and to fill them with stronger words. In the book of Mark, the strongest words that he uses, especially in the text that we're talking about today, are action words. Mark does not give us a lot of physical descriptions 
about what things look like. Fortunately, we have some other gospels that we can cross-reference some of these stories with and get some more of those details. Mark also doesn't use a ton of dialogue at times to tell us what's going on, but Mark does use very strategic action words. And when we look at those action words, especially in today's story, they can teach us a lot about what Jesus is doing, about why he's doing it, and about who he is. Today, we are still at the beginning of Mark in chapter one, and we're starting in verse nine. And verse nine says that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So the first thing that we have Jesus doing, this first action that we see, is we have Jesus coming from Nazareth of Galilee down to the Jordan. People don't know exactly the spot that Jesus traveled to, but the guess is that he traveled approximately 70 miles by foot. To give you some context, if you were to walk from here to the airport in Wichita, that would be 68 miles. Probably took Jesus, if if he's getting baptized about where people think he got baptized, probably took him about five days to make this walk. And it's like, you know, that's a really long walk for Jesus to take, especially because from Nazareth all the way down south to this this spot where he probably got baptized, there's a waterway that that runs essentially all the way down and, and, and would connect that path. And so if it was just about water, Jesus could have stopped by the road and got baptized almost anywhere, stopped by the river, got baptized almost anywhere, and been baptized by any number of people. But Jesus chooses to walk, to walk 70 miles to get baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. He goes from his hometown to a different town to get this baptism. You might be asking yourself, what's so special about John the Baptist? If you're asking yourself that, it's because he didn't come to chapel on Sunday. Maybe you're like my good friend Luke Kirtan over here in the second row, who until today didn't even know we have Sunday chapels. We do. And so if you like have some gaps in regards to like where we're at in the story, you go, you can catch the podcast, you can figure out what you missed, you could even like swing back in your Bible since Mark writes with such an economy of words, you can at least catch like the Cliff's Notes version. It's like going to AV Club if you missed the latest episode of your favorite show and reviewing the synopsis and having some good talking points for lunch the next day. So here we are, and and what we learned on Sunday is that John the Baptist, there were three things that we talked about him. Number one, he was a person who was predicted to come in the Old Testament, this messenger that was made to to make way the, the path of the Lord. He was a man of distinction, right? And in distinction, there were physical distinctives about him, and he had theological distinctives about him. And then he was, he was preaching this new message and a message that was about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And what we established on Sunday in a much longer time period than the 10 seconds that I just explained who John the Baptist was, we established um, that he was a very important and a very central character. Here is Jesus recognizing the importance here of John the Baptist and traveling from the town that he grew up in, the town that his mother grew up in, down to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And going along with this idea of baptism in verse 10, the the text continues, and then when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. 
Here's Jesus, and Jesus is getting baptized. And it's, it's a little bit tricky for us. We don't have time here to, to deal with all of the, the theology and all of the practice of baptism, because um, we'd have to talk about a lot of the different ways that Christians interpret baptism, not only throughout history, but now. One thing that most Christians agree on is that baptism is very important. In fact, it's one of those things that's kind of central to our beliefs as people who follow Christ. But you may, if you've been baptized, you may have been baptized in a different way than your neighbor next to you. Some of us have been immersed where we have to go under the water and come back up. Some of us, they, they have sprinkled us when we were baptized. My wife, she was baptized as an infant. I was baptized when I was about your age. Um, she was baptized as kind of a, a, a dedication, a sign of grace, a welcoming of her into the community of the church and a sign of God's faithfulness. When I was baptized, it was um, a choice that I made because my church puts an emphasis on people who want to make a profession of faith and a declaration of, of repentance to have that sign of being buried um, with, with Christ and living in the resurrection of Christ. And so there's some, some discussions, like friendly discussions, that we can have and, and which are generally viewed as acceptable within this kind of sphere of healthy, orthodox Christian thought. Um, a lot of those don't fully fit into what Jesus is doing because like a baptism of Jesus saying, you know, I'm, I'm repenting and I've sinned, that doesn't quite fit with what we know about who Jesus is and this idea of someone else saying, um, like Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, saying, hey, we want to like uh, baptize you and, and have you recognize as coming into the church. Like that doesn't really fit either. And so what's going on here with this action of Jesus being baptized of going into the water and of coming back up. I think that the thing that um, we can agree on is that number one, there is a sign of newness that's happening here. There's a sign of newness that's happening here. You have this, this guy and, and he's an adult now. He's 30 years old and it seems like for a while he's been living with his mom. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Hanging out in Nazareth, maybe he had a house down the road. I don't know, but he's in his own small hometown. And now he leaves this place and he goes on a long journey. When he goes on a long journey, he goes to this body of water. And to go down into that body of water and to come back up throughout the Bible that is seen as this idea of renewal, that something new is happening. We know that from the story of Noah, where you have a flood and the earth is submerged in water and then it comes out of that submerging. We know that from the, the book of Jonah, where Jonah gets swallowed in the belly of the great beast and is down in the water for, for those three days and then comes back up and he's supposed to do something different, something new is supposed to happen. This is, is, is the, a start, a marker of Jesus being a person who, according to the Gospel of Mark, was fairly anonymous up until this point, and from this point on, is going to do a lot of amazing things. Kind of the start of the ministry of Jesus. And so we have this newness that ha that's happening. I think we also have a foreshadowing of things that are happening, right? Because you have this Jesus who someday is going to go in the tomb. He is going to be buried. He is going to be submerged. And he is going to come back out of that in a way that no one else ha has come back out of that before. And I also think, while looking ahead, we're also looking back a little bit. And we're looking at who Jesus has, has, has had baptize him. And this idea that Jesus' very life itself, as well as all of these messages that Jesus is going to preach, are going to be messages about those things that John the Baptist was talking about, about change, about repentance, 
about turning to God, about being forgiven, and about being transformed into the people that God wants us to be. And so with this action of Jesus going down and coming back up, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot packed into those action words and into that notion. And then we know that a lot is packed into that because of the response that Jesus gets from the natural and even we would consider maybe the unnatural world around him. One of the actions that we see here in verse 10 is that the heavens are torn open and the spirit descends on him like a dove. The heavens are torn open. Mark uses a very, very almost violent language there, doesn't he? It doesn't say that Jesus got a peek into heaven. It doesn't say that the doorway slightly open. No, the heavens were torn open. And in scripture, when the heavens are torn open, there is this notion that there's an access to God that wasn't had before. In um, Isaiah 64, verse one, the, the prophet is crying out to God and saying, oh, that the heavens would be torn open and that you would uh, come down in your presence, begging for this salvation, for this mighty work from God. And when the heavens are torn open, now that is a sign to us and it's a sign to Jesus that something different is happening, isn't it? Something different is happening because now Jesus has, has seen a bit more of the kingdom of heaven and a bit more of the kingdom of God. It's this sign that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is being ushered in with a newness in this moment. And Jesus is now going to need to live in that reality. Now that can be a very scary reality when you have a paradigm shift like that, when you're seeing things differently, when something new happens. There are a lot of us who don't deal well with new things. We deal well with routine. We deal well with what is expected. We deal well with what is known. And when something deviates from outside of that, we have sometimes physical reactions. Our palms start to sweat a little bit. We start to stutter. Our heart beats a little faster to the point where we can even become incapacitated and not know what to do with a newness of a situation. Jesus can't be in that place because the newness, the thing that he's supposed to do is so important. He's about to, 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 to be mobilized that he needs to, to, to deal well with this newness. And an amazing thing happens as, as this newness is revealed to Jesus and revealed to us here in scripture. Because what does it say happens as the, the, the heavens are torn apart? This action of the spirit coming down on descending on him like a dove and a voice coming from heaven and saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am pleased. We have this interaction of, of the three members of the Trinity. We have the Son of God who is here and who is, is, is marking his obedience, who's marking his cause, who's marking the beginning of his journey. And things are now being revealed in terms of who God is and what God is about to do. And the Spirit appears, and we know that the Spirit is a comforter. The Spirit is one who brings peace, and it, it descends on Jesus. And then this action of, of a voice coming down from heaven, and the Father saying, you are, you're loved. You're loved, and with you, I am pleased. And here they are, all there together saying, we are about the same thing. We are about the same thing. You see, Jesus isn't, isn't some kind of, of, of wonky mercenary, is he? No, he's not some lone ranger who's just out there on his own. There is this plan that God has, and Jesus is marking that he is entering into the plan 
And now God is saying, yes, this, this pleases me, and you are loved. And Jesus is, is given a sense of peace, and now it feels like it's time to go. The next action should be Jesus doing awesome things. Because you know what, once we have, it's been revealed to us who we are, and once we've been equipped, that's what we're supposed to do. When Wonder Woman gets her lasso, she's about to go start lassoing bad guys and saving the world, right? When Spider-Man gets his suit, he's supposed to start slinging webs all over the place and going from building to building to building, thwarting robbers, and occasionally traveling uh, to Germany to like conquer Ant-Man. Like all of this stuff is supposed to happen once we figure out who we are and what we're supposed to do and once we've been equipped. But what is the action word? The action word for Jesus isn't, and then Jesus went out into the world and started kicking tail for the glory of the Lord. No, it says that the spirit who has just come to comfort Jesus in verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Disrespectful drove Jesus out into the wilderness, or as some of your Bibles might say, into, into the desert. It doesn't say the Spirit uh, called Jesus out into the wilderness, invited him out into the wilderness for a nice time. No, it says the Spirit immediately, like, you're my son and who I'm well pleased. Here's the peace. Boom, go, get on out of here. And Jesus is out here in, in the desert, in the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This, doesn't, this does not sound super fun, and I don't think it's supposed to sound super fun. I don't know how many of you have been to the desert. I had not been to the desert until recently. Um, I thought that Kansas in the summer was kind of a desert but then I realized it's not that dry. And a few years ago, I did have the opportunity to go to the Middle East and go to the desert. And I, I had some empathy for the people of Israel. I always kind of like was judging them when I would read the Bible and they'd be walking around in the desert complaining. And I was like, suck it up. God will give you the strength. And I got out in the desert and it was sandy and it was 120 degrees and wind was like blowing all over my face. It was pretty much like living in a gritty hairdryer. And my first thing was like, oh, this stinks. I hate this. Like, I totally understand what you guys' problem was, but you should have been stronger than me because you're the people of God. So here's Jesus. <laughs> he's out. He's out here. Um, not only does he have this discomfort, right? of this jarring situation of being driven out into the desert, being there by himself, by himself kind of, we'll get to that in a second, by himself, but he's also then being tempted um, by, by, by Satan for 40 days and for 40 nights. This is not necessarily what we would expect as Jesus comes to understand who he is and as he acquiesces, right, to the will of God and to the plan of God, we have this economy in our minds that say, when I, when I start being obedient, then, then God's just gonna empower me and I'm gonna do all the things. And here's Jesus not really getting to do the things that we think of Jesus as doing. He's out here and, and, and he's in the desert and I'm sure that there are times where it feels alone because 40 days is a long time to be stuck somewhere with Satan. And you start to feel weak, and Satan knows what buttons to push, but something is happening here, because even though he's out there, and he's just out there with Satan and the wild animals, the angels are there ministering to him. That last action word, the angels are there ministering to him. They are sustaining him, aren't they? We know from some of the other gospels that Jesus withstands these temptations of Satan. 
And as Jesus is walking out the historical journey of the people of God, you know, we know that Jesus had to, to be in Egypt for a time as he was um, fleeing genocide. We now know that, that just like the people of Israel, after they escaped Egypt, Jesus has gone under the water and come back up. The people went under the water or through the water on dry ground. They spent some time in the desert. Theirs was 40 years. Jesus is 40 days before they come into the promised land, into this kingdom, into this place that God has called them. Jesus is being prepared to be in that place, to usher in this kingdom, to, to, to be a word that there has not been before in the hearts and in the ears of the people and to do work beyond that which they had seen. Here's Jesus and he's getting that last bit of preparation. And I wonder if part of the reason that that Jesus is able to to do this is because, in fact, the heavens have been torn open and he is able to see things, see things in a different way than anyone else can see them. Because if you were to peep in on Jesus during this time, I think you would think, man, uh, it looks kind of rough out there. That doesn't look fun. And it probably wasn't fun. But there's this beautiful, beautiful dance that's happening where Jesus is being ministered to where while Jesus is being tempted, we know from other gospels that he withstands that temptation and that Jesus does indeed then find himself able to go out into the world for a very brief window of time and for a very intense window of time, minister to the world in very radical and profound ways. We learn a lot about who Jesus is in these brief, short verses that don't have a lot of descriptors, but have so many action words. If we were to apply some of these action words to our own lives, who, who, who would we be? Who would we be? When we think about this idea of our baptism, whatever that is from the Christian tradition that we come from, is that something that, that we are living in? Are we living as a people who have been marked by God and by our faith communities? Are we living as a people who indeed recognize and the people around us recognize that we have died with Christ and in Christ's resurrection, we are living in a very different way? Have we made that journey just like Jesus made that journey to that realization and to that recognition that that repentance, that, that that mark, that that mark of grace is something that we need? Are we living with the recognition that while the world around us is very complicated, sometimes very difficult, that there is a kingdom above and beyond that we are being invited into? Are we allowing ourselves to be comforted by the very spirit that Jesus gave us? And when we look at ourselves, have we heard the voice of God come to us and say, you are my sons and my daughters. You were created in my image and in you, I am very well pleased. And when we are in those desert places, when we have been driven out, when we don't understand why we aren't getting to do the things that we really want to do, the things that we feel called to do when we are being tempted by Satan, when we're out there with the wild animals, when everything just feels dry and like it is attacking us. Do we have that perspective that Jesus had where we could see that God has equipped us with people, with the Holy Spirit, with the word of God itself, with prayer, with worship to minister to us and to minister to our hearts? 
You know, we talk a lot about being a sending institution. We talk about sending you out into the world to do the things that God has called you to do, but there's this process that happens before we do that. You don't just come here and, and sit in seats and chill out and relax and do that for two or three or four years, and then we just drive you out into the wilderness. No, there's, there's this life that, that, that we live together. And part of that life that we live together is, is we want to see the world and the kingdom as Jesus did, and as much as we can to experience it as Jesus did. And when we think about the action words that we have here in the first part of the book of Mark, what is the action word that God has for you today? Is the action word that you need to, to start your journey to your baptism, to the recognition that you need to go down and come back up again? Is it the part of your journey where God does need to come and say, you are being obedient and I am commissioning you to do a new thing? Is the part of your journey right now, part of your wilderness journey, where it's just really, really hard and, and the action words are going to be things that God is doing in your life? I don't know. I don't know. 600 people in the room right now, probably 600 different answers but I know that when we start to ask this question about who Jesus is and the things that God was doing in the life of Jesus, the things that Jesus was doing in the life of other people, we are going to stop the process short than when we don't then turn that on ourselves and consider, and at least consider, all right, God, what do you have for me today? And what's the thing out of our experience together that you're calling me to do, that you're calling me to hear, that you're calling me to understand, or that you're calling me to believe? Because when you go through your desert situation and when you are on the precipice, the precipice of experiencing your calling and ministering to other people and to the world the way that God wants you, I want you to be prepared for that. I want you to be prepared for that. As we consider um, those questions, I want us to, to take a posture of worship and a posture of prayer we're going to respond to God, and we're going to, to, to at least consider this word and respond to it. In the next five minutes, my prayer for you is this. As we sing and as we, as we cry out and as we lift our voices to God, the Spirit of God would make itself known to you and would give you a heart that would be obedient to whatever God has for you today.